Hello everybody. Just thought I'd give you a quick heads up before we jump into this week's episode. You may have noticed there's been a bit of a gap since the last time I recorded, and that's because life's just thrown me a few curves. In addition to teaching for uh, a longer hours on two nights, my daughter is also performing in a show, which means I am basically an Uber driver ferrying her to and from the theatre every single day for the next two weeks. Those people that listen to the Fantasticast will have realised that show has had to go bi-weekly while all this settles down. Now, I didn't want this feed to just lie fallow why this was happening, because I do like doing Palace. And as all podcasters will tell you, when you want an episode done quickly, do a commentary. To that end, Mark Taylor recently sent me the five-issue adaptation of Harlan Ellison's original teleplay for The City on the Edge of Forever, and I thought it would be fun to go through the episode as presented and point out the differences between the script and the screen, and um, have a look at what changes were made and whether I felt they were favourable and which one I prefer. So I'll let you listen to my splendiferous opening sequence and when we come back we'll be right into the classic Star Trek episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. So go get your DVDs or your Blu-rays or fire up your Netflix, make yourself a coffee or a tipple of choice and get yourself comfy. And we are straight in to the city on the edge of forever. New flyby. Um, I think most Star Trek fans know that Harlan Ellison's original script for this episode opens in considerably different fashion. Uh, you have Lebec and Beckwith dealing in the jewels of sound in the opening teaser to the episode, which is somewhat different to the teaser that we get given on the actual show, which is Kirk in the Enterprise um, investigating curious eddies in time. I don't know whether this was originally supposed to be like tied up to the whole Naked Now, Tomorrow is Yesterday duet that also involved time travel. Um, but whatever the case, it's essentially uh, its own entity now. Uh, Lebec... I think it's Lebec. No, Beckwith's the one who's dealing, isn't he? One of Harlan Ellison's bugaboos over the years would be that uh, Gene Roddenberry would continue to repeat the story that he had Scotty dealing drugs, which, you know, is not true. And Gene really should have have, uh, changed his story after being told that on numerous occasions. Scotty, it doesn't even appear in this script. Uh, until, in fact, I don't think he does. I don't think Scotty appears in the script at all. The only regular characters to have speaking parts are Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock, and, weirdly, Yeoman Rand, who actually gets uh, quite a lot to do. Uh, the Cordrazine stuff was brought in, my understanding, is to make it more about our characters, but also, from a production standpoint, the removal of Beckwith and Lebec and replacing them with Dr. McCoy, who accidentally injects himself with Cordrasine. Ellison hates that. Ellison hated a lot of what this script became. He particularly is not fond of a a professional doctor accidentally injecting himself. I can see his point, but um, from a production standpoint, as I was saying, this involves the removal of two extraneous salaries. Which, if you've read Mark Cushman's books, These Are the Voyages, you know, was always a, a consideration of uh, above-the-line producer Robert Justman, who was forever writing out Jimmy Doohan, Nichelle Nichols and Judge Takai out of episodes because they were commanding higher guest star salaries. As I said, Lebec and Beckwith have, have gone the way of the dodo. Dr. McCoy is now the one who takes them down to the bizarre planet with the uh, the Guardian of Forever. For those of you that are watching along at home, we're into the credits. 
So if you've missed the sync up, we're going where no man has gone before. Whoosh! Star Trek, we're on a Star Trek. My lyrics are better than Gene's. He had some guff about a Star Wars man's love, but mine merely says Trek. Come on, those lyrics are genius. Genius, I tell you. The City on the Edge of Forever. Harlan would complain that the title no longer made any sense. Because in the uh, in the episode itself, they don't go to a city. Which is, you know, that again is a valid complaint. In his original script, they go to a large city. Um, Kirk has a rather clunky line in the script, like a city on the edge of forever. Um, and it is a city. It's a jeweled crystal city, lots of stalactites and stalactites. The Guardians are actually six men, or old figures. The dialogue roughly stays the same, as it will when we get down to the giant donut, but now that we've uh, we've focused on the differences in the opening, let's go back to the episode itself. When I was watching this last night, in preparation for this, one of the things that did strike me was that performances are, are top-notch throughout. DeForest Kelly chews the scenery somewhat in these opening scenes. When uh, Dr. McCoy goes, you know, over the top, quite literally. But, you know, he makes up for it later. I'll mention his performance later. Um, this opening, instead, is all focused on the bridge again. It does seem to me like a lot of the rewriting for this episode was a cost-saving procedure. And even with that, this ended up being one of the more expensive episodes of the season. Shan is particularly good in this one. I think it has to be said. Obviously, I'm watching this on Netflix, so these are the new effects rather than the old effects. You know, they're fine. They get the job seen in HD and perhaps seen by more people, so that's good. One of the things and I was saying that I did notice when I watched this last week, last night, was that the music's quite intrusive in this one. And that's largely because... There's very little new music composed for this. What they there is though, the reworking of Goodnight Sweetheart is very effective. But a lot of the music in this episode is derived from other shows and not written specifically for this episode. Again, I presume it's cost cutting method. Uh the Guardian of Forever, as we see it here, which is a giant donut. Again, Ellison, not fond of the giant donut. Where in his mind he's envisioned this big cavern of, of six people. It is, you know, it's fair to say that the one that is depicted in the comic book adaptation with art by J.K., I was going to say J.K. Rowling, but it's actually J.K. Woodward. <laughs> J.K. Rowling wrote a Star Trek comic, that'd be amusing. Um, is a lot grander. You know, obviously Allison didn't have to worry about budgets and apparently rewrote it a couple of times before Gene Kuhn, Dorothy Fontana and indeed Gene Roddenberry took a, a pass at it. The explanation of the time eddies, time ripples, whatever, is a lot more in-depth in the actual script that Scott and David Tipton adapted for the comic book. Although, Spock's descriptions of it. I still like that line of question. Since before your son burned heart, that is... That's Ellison's line. The showing of the past is likewise similar in the original comic book. Or the original script. And I am neither. So one of the things I noticed when watching this one this time, some of the editing is a little bit clunky. I'll point out a couple of instances of clunky editing that probably, you know, went through 
with no notification or problems back in 1967 when this episode was produced. Now it is looking a little bit on the cheap side, but it's a 53-year-old television episode. The fact that it looks as good as it does is a testament to the creatives of the time. There's a clip here. Back in the 80s, there was a, a television show called Television. An original title, I know, that was uh, about television. And it had a, a segment on Star Trek in that show, the Star Trek phenomenon. Chatner was in, interviewed on the set of TJ Hooker because he had his police uniform on. And the clip that they used when talking about the show, when to advertise the show, television, was this upcoming soundbite here from Captain Kirk, where he says, Strangely compelling, isn't it? To step into the past, lose yourself. That was the clip that they used when advertising the show. And I think I watched the entire series just to see the Star Trek bits. I can't remember when it heard. I think it heard around 1985, 86-ish on the ITV network. Um, Uhura's down on the planet here in lieu of Yeoman Rand. He doesn't actually get anything to do in this script, whereas Rand does at least get to fight with Beckwith. And later on, she will beam back to the ship. I honestly don't understand Kirk's rationale here. Why go back in time to stop McCoy injecting herself with the Cordracine? The Cordracine doesn't appear to be life-threatening. And in fact, McCoy makes a full recovery from it, you know, in 1930, with no futuristic medicine. Presumably, when they get him back to the ship... Nurse Chapel can administer whatever it is to help him, and he'll make a full recovery. So the, the whole idea of Kirk coming up with this rather ridiculous notion of going back in time just to stop McCoy from injecting himself seems odd. But that's possibly a result of, of the, const the rewrites that this went through. The fact, again, that it holds together as much as it does... Is a, is a testament to how good it is. Again, you know, I can see some of Ellison's problem. No one here is holding McCoy. They haven't bound him. They haven't tied him up. Whereas in, in the script, Beckwith attacks from behind, knocks the crew out, and he's, he's depicted in the comic book as being a big man, um, and jumps through the Guardian of Forever. This bit here were the minute that Mackay jumps through... I turned into Thanos for a second there. The minute that Mackay jumps through the Guardian... And this is the end of episode, issue, issue one of the comic book adaptation. The minute that Mackay jumps through, the Enterprise disappears. In Ellison's original script, the Enterprise is still in orbit around the planet of the Guardian. But now run by strange pirates who keep the crew who have taken over the crew and taken them hostage and this is an element of Ellison's script I didn't quite understand it's not called the Enterprise now it's called the Condor and this was a diversion that I think they were wise to cut because it's again another redressing of the set another bunch of actors that they don't need to have and it actually makes more sense in the televised episode that the Enterprise just isn't there excellent fade out here of Kirk realising that they're all alone. The history has been completely and irrevocably changed. The Enterprise just does not exist in this timeline. Um, I actually think that's far more effective than going back to the ship and having this rather silly interlude with the pirates. It makes more sense that the, the Enterprise just isn't there. Whatever it is that McCoy changed has resulted in no Starfleet. The explanation that these are protected because they're on the planet and therefore outside of time in some way, that works. And you're not left wondering how, why in this alternate timeline that McCoy or Beckwith in the script has created, why is the Condor still there? Why is the Condor still investigating the Guardian? How are these pirates where they are? What are they doing? You know. That was a, that was an element of Ellison's original script. I didn't I didn't understand, and I could understand why it was cut. It's very strange. 
in the in the script again the guardians give them a clue as to how to find edith keeler that is you know what they'll find they don't know edith keeler yet and that they will be drawn to some kind of focal point which is what spock realizes later on in the episode I do like this. I do like what Kirk tells them here. You know, if you don't hear from us after a certain amount of time, step through the portal in duos, and at least you'll be alive at some point in the past. I think the smart thing for them to do at that point would be, would, would they go back to the same time period to try and get McCoy? Or would they go back to an earlier time or a, a time afterwards? It's It's really... It's really an unusual situation that Kirk left them in there, because if they fail then they will step through into a future that they don't know. And I'm wondering maybe they'd be better to try and go back to 1930 and them have a go at trying to find McCoy. So they're tripling up the the chance there. But they're also tripling up the chance of going back in time and meeting Kirk and Spock and, and fouling it all up. So Very strange. Um... Kirk and Spock appear outside the Ellison Theatre in the comic adaptation. The comic book is full of references to other of Ellison's works. If I spot them in the art as we go through, I'll mention them. There is a lot more racism and bigotry in Ellison's original script, making that element of the story a little bit more... Risky, a little bit more daring than perhaps they would allow on television in 1967. <coughs> Excuse me. Problem with the audio commentaries. You can't edit that stuff like that. And in this scene, Kirk and Spock essentially just walk down the middle of the street in their silly futuristic uniforms. Um, not even attempting to stay in the shadows initially. Spock just keeps putting his hand over his, over his ears. And in in Ellison's script, though, Kirk actually uses his phaser in front of the uh, of the mob that chases them upon their arrival, which is surely more of a, a risk to the timeline than anything Kirk does. Which uh, again, this is the end of episode two, issue two. Where Kirk steals some clothes from a clothesline. In the comic book, they go into a basement and steal their clothes. Interestingly, in the in the comic book, they've drawn them in the same clothes that they steal. Um, this scene with Bruce Mars, who was Finnegan in Shore Leave, as the policeman, catching them stealing the clothes. Um, they don't look like the clothes they end up wearing. Kirk's checkered shirt doesn't appear to be there, although a pair of blue jeans and a pair of dark jeans are there, which is what they both end up wearing pants. This stuff about the Chinese rice picker. I am willing to bet this is a Gene Kuhn edition. Kuhn was quite big on putting uh, humour into Star Trek scripts. Roddenberry wasn't a big fan of that. And Ellison hated this scene. Maybe been a Fontana edition. But I don't know. The music, ironically, is the Finnegan music. Um, given that that is Bruce Mars, who played Finnegan. I like this use of the Vulcan neck pinch. Uh, that obviously isn't in Ellison's original script. Because at the time Ellison worked on this script, he'd only seen a handful of episodes. Which is why, in the script, Spock is considerably out of character uh, or at the very least comes across as a, a jerk in many ways whereas in the, the televised episode uh, he's a lot more like the spot that has been developed over the course of the first season uh, Kirk now appears to have the checkered shirt that he will wear in a minute and again they don't disappear they do eh, is it a basement there they run down an alleyway into a room and then suddenly they are in a basement of a building so fair enough i suppose i mean again there are a lot of new sets in this episode so it is quite still a costly one this is a great episode 
for seeing the dynamic between Shatner and Nimoy. I do wonder where the uniforms went. It just does a fade. And next we see them in the Kirk resplendent in his um, I'm a lumberjack shirt and his, his grey jeans. Spock in a grey shirt and blue jeans. And a convenient bob cap that he just happened to find. Um, the uniforms are nowhere to be seen. They're not on the table in front of them. They're not on the floor. Obviously, they keep the boots. Because, you know, why bother? Shoes are shoes. They don't have to disguise themselves, though. I have no idea where their uniforms went. So. I like these little touches. Shatner's busy doing stuff in the background. He seemed like he burned his hand there on something. I like the discussion. Sometimes I expect too much of you. Kirk using reverse psychology on Spotler that is uh and <laughs> surprisingly it works. Kirk Spock actually falls for that. This is an interesting rewrite. In the script, this is just another guy. He's the guy who, who he's presumably the custodian of the building. And he employs Kirk and Spock to be like cleaners the rewrite brings edith keeler into the story that much quicker she doesn't appear in the comic book adaptation until and i'm flicking through the pages uh until the middle of this act again it also eliminates um a paying script a paying actor by combining the edith keeler role with this role of the custodian it uh, it brings her into into the story that much quicker, gives Kurt more time with her, more time to build up the relationship. I mean, he's instantly attracted to her because, you know, it's Joan Collins as a Ute. An excellent read of payment. Spock. Shatner and, and Collins are actually very good. It's a very low-key performance from both of them. And it's it's another one of the episodes to emphasise Shatner's abilities. You know, his double act with Leonard Nimoy is never better than it is in this episode. I think the only time they were as good as this is probably in Star Trek for The Voyage Home. Because, again, that's just Shatner and Nimoy working together without D. Kelly or... Anybody else in the ensemble asking for time? This is essentially a script that is just Kirk and Spark working together. And it does show the magnificent timing and abilities and the great chemistry between the pair of them. The guy that Kirk is sat next to here, the guy who gives him the lecture about uh, sister Edith Keeler, which is what she's credited with, in the uh, in the script, is the guy who later on will phaser himself with Dr. McCoy's phaser when McCoy finally comes through the time portal. That was a lovely touch. I can't remember if I'd ever noticed that before. I probably had, because obviously I've watched this episode on any number of occasions. But it was it was a nice touch to have it be this guy here. So Kirk actually has a relationship with this guy that ultimately McCoy will get killed. And presumably, this poor guy makes no effect on the timeline. So his death doesn't matter at all in the grand scheme of things, which is a shame that somebody's life is ultimately considered worthless. But, you know, one of them things, I suppose, not everyone's an Edith Keeler. Edith's understanding of what's going to happen in the future is a little bit more on the nose and obvious in the episode than it is in the script or the comic book adaptation. In the comic book, it's Spock who quickly realises that Edith is the focal point because the clue that the Guardians gave them 
blue it will be blue as the sky of old earth and clear as truth and the sun will burn on it and there is the key is a brooch that Edith is wearing on a blue cloak and that's what I, I find that a little bit a little bit too easy a little bit more obvious in the in the episode the implication is that time is drawing them all to this important focal point which is probably a little bit more esoteric than Spock spotting a clue that the Guardians of Forever gave him. But it, I always find it infuriating, like when in Marvel Comics, when the Watcher will say something, you know, esoteric and impenetrable, like Kosh in Babylon 5. Instead of just telling us what he means, why are you speaking in riddles? Just tell us what you mean. You know, why not say there will be a woman and you will be drawn to her and you will know who she is? And that would do. It's a little bit more obvious, but... You know, again, Keela here tells Kirk that she knows of a flop house for them to stay in, uh, a word he is not familiar with. Fair enough. Um, in the script, there is a lot more colloquialisms of the area of the era. Sorry, Ellison probably was a child in 1930. I would imagine so. He's probably just drawing from his own childhood. Nice little comedic beat though with the guy with the weird beard. Shatner is, both Shatner and Nimoy are at their best in this episode. I do think this is one of the better performances by both of them. Both of them working exceptionally well off the other. There's an element of bemused fish out of water to Shatner's performance that is not over the top like it is in, in Star Trek for The Voyage Home. Spock, just as you would expect, Spock takes it all in stride. Uh, I do love, I love all this bit in the quarters, the little flat that they've got together, where Spock just has loads of mad scientist stuff. The Shatner's reaction there, as Spock says, I need some platinum, and starts banging on about geodinetic fuel cores, and Shatner's just looking at him like, I am not going to be able to get you platinum. This is good, he has to balance the bag, I, was, I don't know why I like that touch, I just do. Did that contain platinum? Silver or gold, nor is it likely to in the very near future. You are asking me to use equipment. Rid of stone knives and bearskins is one of the best lines of the episode. That's that that must be a product of rewriting. McCoy will be along in a few days. How do they know that? At this present moment in time, they're still in the dark as to when McCoy will arrive, how he will arrive. The idea that they're even in the same place is is perhaps stretching credibility a little. But presumably, the recordings that, that Spock had on the tricorder has allowed him to at least pinpot the area as well as the era. To construct a mnemonic memory circuit from stone knives and bird skins. One of Leonard Nimoy's best line deliveries. Collins plays the wide-eyed naivete very well. Shatner's reaction to it as he just looks at Spock with a... You know, Spock, sometimes the truth ain't necessarily the way to go. Is The performances in this episode are beautiful. You know, I, don't, I think they probably realised they had a good script on their hands in this one. They're getting to play different colours of the characters. You know, he's not captain of the Enterprise in this episode. He's not the first officer. A lot more in the script. The, the script in the middle of the episode is, is has a lot more character moments between Kirk and Edith. Um, there is no definitive point in the episode where you can say where issue three ends because it's the middle section that seems to have been rewritten the most. There's a lot more in Ellison's script of, of Kirk and Edith dating, which emphasises the closeness of the relationship and how close... They've got to each other over a very short period of time. A lot of Keeler's and Kirk's relationship in this episode is purely attributable 
to Joan Collins and, and William Shatner's performance, considering they'd never met each other before this episode, as far as I know. I love that. Don't give that little old me look that Kirk does give him, give her. And at the observation that she comes up with here, you belong at his side, as if you've always been there and always will, used to beautiful effect in Mike W. Barr's comic book adaptation of Star Trek Three, where he ends the adaptation with that quote, you belong at your captain's side, Mr. Spark, as if you've always been there and always will. And it's just one of the the many ways a comic book adaptation can improve upon the source material. There's another bit in that adaptation, to go off on a tangent, where when Kirk sets the destruction of the Enterprise, he has one last look around the bridge before he blows it up. He doesn't do that in the film. And that bit there, Captain, even when he doesn't say it, he does. Showing her her remarkable observational gift that she has which is allowing her to be able to understand where mankind is going. Lovely shot there of them just walking along brushing hands. This goes to the editing. That shot of the radio repair shot is a freeze frame. And for some reason it stays on for an inordinate amount of time by television standards. When they could really cut straight to them walking past Floyd's barbershop, which I understand is, um, is that the Andy Griffith show? And this is filmed on, on that set. Uh, again, I'm not overly familiar with the Andy Griffith show. So it may be Andy Griffith. It may be, I don't know, it could be the Lucy show for all I know. I know it's a famous set that baby boomers of this generation would recognise Floyd's Barbershop from some other show. Obviously, straight over my head. I love this conversation. Words, let me help. Um, he says about 100 years from now, that will be a, a popular novel. So 100 years from 1930 is 2030, which is only 10 years away from where we are now. So in, in 10 years or so, I fully expect there to be a novel about uh, Let Me Help. Probably a Star Trek novel, I would imagine. This is where the score really does work. The integration of Goodnight Sweetheart into the incidental music is beautifully done. Very subtly done, unlike some of the other music cues nicked from other episodes which are quite intrusive. I, I'm a big fan of the scores for the original show. Um, but in this episode, some of the music cues don't really suit the action. Here we see Spock seeing the information about Edith Keeler being killed and when he will reboot the tricorder in a moment or two, he'll get a completely different news report, which is interesting because that, that plays wonderfully into your imagination as to how all this is working so was that the memory banks of the tricorder from the original timeline and as he's he's connected it to this whatever device he's got on the bed and it's rebooting itself with the new history like a like a web page refreshing when you look at it originally it's the old information like it's been cached and then when he refreshes it, he suddenly gets the new information. That is remarkable and remarkably prescient as well. And, you know, they didn't mean that. They didn't know what the internet was when they invented this episode. But it works, the idea that he's connected the tricorder to this device that he's got. It's got all the old memory data in it that shows him Edith dying. And then when he's managed to reconnect and reboot, when it did that little flurry of information, it's suddenly got the new information. So only Spock is now privy to the divergent timeline and the idea that Edith Keeler is the focal point. Kirk and Spock's relationship in the comic adaptation is a lot more antagonistic. Again, Ellison only had a handful of episodes to work from when he wrote his script. And essentially this scene is probably the hardest for them to adapt in the comic book medium. It essentially is three pages, four pages, of what in Bendisland would be talking heads, where they discuss Edith Keeler being the focal point. And it's, it's handled as well as it can be in, in the comic book, without the ability to move the camera and focus on the actors. Performance-wise, again, I mean, you're probably going to get bored of hearing me, me say this as we go through this episode, but they, they are pitch perfect in this episode. Shatner underplaying 
beautifully. My only real complaint is he keeps changing from scene to scene. In this scene here where he's talking about all of history being changed, it looks like he's got it very far back on his forehead. Like almost Bruce Willis-like in terms of its receding hairline. And then in other shots, it'll be a lot looser, a lot fluffier, a lot more of the curl over the front of his forehead, the forelock. That to save the future, Edith Keeler must die. I mean, in, in Ellison's scripts, there is no, there's no debate there. You know, Spock is saying he's framing it as a, what if we discover she has to die? Whereas in the script, there, she, Spock is, she has to die. History demands it. That's patent from the beginning. And Kirk is left to struggle with the idea that she has to die. He kind of gives her a little bit of an out. They're giving Kirk a little bit of an out here. In the, the leaving it ambiguous as to whether or not she has to die. And therefore he's not really wrestling with the decision as much as he does in the comic book adaptation. McCoy arrives, which is also could play into the tricorder rebooting, because there is the question there's how why does the tricorder reboot if McCoy hasn't arrived yet? And that would have been an interesting development if they'd somehow managed to slot this scene. Although we don't know, for example, we could say that this is happening as that previous scene is happening. And instead of the caching rebooting idea that I just had, it is the minute that McCoy comes back through the Guardian of Forever Though, this is happening simultaneously with Spock and Kirk having that conversation. And as McCoy arrives, that's when the tricorder information updates. All, you know, this is just me spitballing ideas because it's fun to do that when you've got uh, time travel episodes. This scene of her on the stairs... Oh, no, that's later, isn't it? Sorry, I'm just... I was just going to say in the script for the episode, it's a... Kirk lets her fall down the stairs. Whereas, obviously, in the televised episode, he catches her. But that's, that's yet to come. The Goodnight Sweetheart melody in the background... What's interesting about this is Kirk and Edith's relationship is very much predicated on a sharing of philosophies. An argument that can be made that this is one of the few times in the show Kirk has a genuine adult relationship with a woman. You know, up until this point in the series, his relationships have been flings Obviously, we don't know about Carol Marcus yet, but we know about the little blonde lab technician because she was mentioned in Where No Man Has Gone Before. That he, excuse me, that he almost married. And all his other relationships seem to be flings or youthful endeavours, like Ruth. Well, you get the impression that Ruth was a maybe a, an early girlfriend when he was in the academy or when he was in high school or whatever. No, no indication he's given. Noel in... Um, Whatever episode Noel's in. The one who looks like Gina Davis. She's obviously just a Christmas fling. Various other girlfriends that we've seen in the first season. There was never any indication there was a serious relationship there. Even when he gets to Miramani, I think you can argue his connection with Miramani is more of his connection to liking the idea of a more simple life. This is the only time in the show Kirk has a genuine adult relationship with a genuine adult female. And as such, that's why it's one of the better episodes of the show. And again, only emphasises how brilliant Generations could have been had it been Joan Collins and not that Antonia woman who was in the Nexus with him. This is the scene I was talking about earlier on. This guy, Dr. McCoy. DeForest Kelly's performance here, obviously, is brilliant. Uh, he's toned down the madness somewhat as he's obviously recovering from whatever it is the Cordrazine's done to him. And the guy steals his phaser. Fortunately, he doesn't have a communicator with him. And he starts fiddling with the phaser and ends up blasting himself into oblivion. An element, a development, sorry, that does not happen in the original script. 
the actual structural elements though are the same Beckwith arrives a little bit later than Kirk and Spock do roughly around the same beat around the same place in the structure of the storyline again a freeze frame oh one of the editing things I didn't mention when Edith's doing her talk earlier on the shot of Kirk when he looks at Spock and then it freeze frames is actually taken from later in the episode In the script, Edith actually confesses her love for Kirk. He and she never seem to do that in the TV episode. Again, in the script, Spock was going to use the phaser on Edith Keeler if he had to. If he had to kill her himself, he would do. This is very much the Spock of When No Man Has Gone Before, who was willing to kill Gary Mitchell, whereas Kirk was very much the one looking for the peaceable solution. So Ellison's been very true to the characterization of Spock in the very early days of the show. It does kind of seem a little bit incongruous at this point in the development of the show where we're starting to develop Spock more along the pacifist lines, who will fight when he has to. Um, This is beautifully handled. Not a scene, obviously, that is in the original script, because McCoy isn't in that original script. Uh, McCoy manages to stumble into the mission, and he's escorted out of the room just as Spock walks in. And that's just a wonderful touch that, you know, Spock's... A second away from finding McCoy before it all goes to hell. Spock's knowledge of the alternate timeline. And um, Germany winning World War Two is the impetus for the change in the timeline. Uh, I think it's John Byrne in one of his, I don't know whether it was one of his New Voyages comics, but postulated the idea that this is where the Mirror Universe came from. The idea that the Mirror Universe comes from the universe where Edith Keeler prevented America from entering World War II, and that begot the Empire. Um, I think they're the Empire in the, um, the Mirror Universe, aren't they? If memory serves. Anyway, doesn't matter. You know what I mean. The evil the evil versions. That stems from this timeline. And I, I think that's quite an interesting idea. Um, it's a shame that the TV show Enterprise kind of pissed all over that by establishing that it was first contact with the Vulcans where Earth went down the Mirror Universe route. Um, I much prefer Burns' idea that it was Edith Keeler. But, you know. I like the idea that Spock doesn't know the time and date of the actual death. Um, obviously, I I don't know whether 1930 news reports would have mentioned that. Nowadays, they do tend to mention where and when somebody was killed in such a situation as this. So it would have been in the newspaper report. I mean, it's entirely possible Spock just didn't get a good enough look. And it's here that Spock is of the opinion Edith Keeler must die. Nimoy's performance, though in contrast to what Ellison originally wrote, is a lot more sympathetic to Shatner and Kirk, to Kirk's predicament. He knows that what he's telling Kirk is difficult and painful. Whereas in in the comic adaptation than the original script, Spock is much more matter-of-fact about the whole thing, as he was in Where No Man Has Gone Before. This is what I was talking about earlier on in the show, when uh, we're talking about DeForest Kelly's performance and how fantastic that is, particularly in this scene. Now that he's calmed down from the Cordrazine overdose, his playful banter with, with Joan Collins as Edith Keeler is delightful. And I think I've read it somewhere, DeForest Kelly played it that Dr. McCoy may very well have had a bit of a crush on Edith as well. Obviously, the episode can't really go into that in any detail, so it doesn't. 
I'm a surgeon, not a psychiatrist. So that's almost an I'm a doctor, not a line, but not quite. See, the whole... This this is a great performance from D. Kelly. Uh, it replaces, in the original script, Harlan Ellison had a character called Trooper, who was a, a war veteran who had no legs. In the comic, uh, Trooper is drawn to look like Harlan Ellison in his, his older years. Of all of the rewrites in of the script, it's the loss of Trooper that seems to upset Ellison. Again, it's nice to give some space to a veteran like that and to show that not everyone comes home in one piece. On the other hand, I don't know that a television show in 1967 would have portrayed that. And again... You know, from a production point of view, it's another actor that needs paying. That they probably didn't want to pay. This is the scene on the stairs. Kurt catches her in the comic. He lets her fall. It's interesting that here, Spock's the one who says that if she, if you'd let her go then, that's when maybe she could have died. But that's not allowing for the fact that if he hadn't been there, she wouldn't have turned around on the stairs. And fallen, whereas the implication of the ending is that she was crossing that road at that time anyway, and the fact that she was out on a date with Kirk is is irrelevant to the timeline. For whatever reason, she was out there at that time, whereas she wouldn't have been turning around on those stairs if she hadn't been talking to Kirk. And this here, this bit here with where Kirk says McCoy isn't here. Yeah, how does he know that? See, because McCoy is there. And Spock at least points that out to him that we're not sure of the facts. Because he is the Kirk just doesn't know that. And that's one of the things I do like about this episode. Kirk is not the infallible hero that he would become in later episodes of the show. And even Shatner is guilty of that. In, in Shatner's Shatnerverse novels, Kirk is an infallible hero who's never wrong. A characterization of any hero I find remarkably boring. It's one of the things that struck me on rewatching Book Rogers on its recent rerun is how boringly right Book was all of the time. He was never wrong. He was never allowed to be wrong. And it just makes for a very, very boring leading man. Someone who has no foibles, who has no nothing wrong with them, who's right all the time. It just makes for very dull watching. I much prefer the Kirk of the, the first season, who isn't right all the time. You know, in this episode is a prime example of that. He doesn't know whether McCoy's here or not. He doesn't know the correct course of action to take. He is kind of agonising over the decision of what to do. DeForest Kelly showing just how charming he can be as an actor. Uh, Joan Collins in Soft Focus, which she hasn't been in a lot in this show, this particular episode. I mean, they shot a lot of the women in Soft Focus a lot of the time. A very popular technique in, in 50s film noir, shooting the woman in Soft Focus, and something they would resurrect for Moonlighting in the 80s. Sybil Shepherd, they would shoot Sybil Shepherd in Soft Focus a lot. I would like to have explored perhaps a little bit more McCoy's realisation of where he is. She gives him a newspaper, though, and that's his first inkling that he's in 1930. Up until this point, McCoy doesn't have a clue where he is, or probably how he got there. You know, he remembers the Cordrazine overdose. What else he remembers is, is left ambiguous. Uh, it's interesting that it's a Clark Gable movie that leads to the realisation that... Uh, Kirk and McCoy know a little bit more than they do. It was interesting that Spock was going out with Kirk, though. So it's not as contrived. Wherever Spock was going, it was different. And in the script, obviously, this is the moment that is the biggest change. Kirk freezes. Spock prevents Beckwith from saving Edith Keeler, and obviously in the script, Spock stands by doing nothing, and it's Kirk who prevents McCoy from saving Edith. 
And that's beautifully done in the script, actually, because earlier on he stopped her from fall. He let her fall. And there's the realisation, though, that he couldn't do it again. He let her fall down the stairs earlier on, but he couldn't let her walk in front of this truck and let her die. And the, the refrain there, bringing back good, good night, sweetheart, as Shatner gives one of his most internalised performances, is, is just beautiful. It is a beautiful ending. Whether you like the scripted version or the TV version, it's still a beautiful ending. What I love about this is when Kirk and McCoy come through the Guardian here, McCoy comes slightly after they're all back in the uniforms, Scotty and Uhura both get a close-up to show they know some bad shit went down. Even if they don't know what it is. And that's, that's actually a pretty good reaction shot from Nichelle Nichols and Jimmy Doohan, who both really don't have much to do in this episode. And I love, I love this. I love this final line. Let's get the fuck out of here. Would have been what they would say nowadays. There's my one fuck for the... Oh, there's my second for the episode. Let's get the hell out of here. Um, obviously, numerous other shows. There would be numerous follow-up novels and such with The Guardian of Forever and, and so on and so forth. Uh, the ending, Beckwith's ending, is a lot more dramatically ironic. He ends up in the heart of a star, dying for all eternity. And there is a lovely scene at the end of the episode between Spock and Kirk where they talk about how Beckwith, who did all these awful things, could still be a guy who saves a life. And that's the human condition. And it ends that uh, with Spock saying, no woman was ever loved as much, Jim, because no woman was ever offered the universe for love. James Blish's adaptation of this in Star Trek number three, where he adapted all of the episodes into novel form, tries to blend the best of Ellison with the best of the original script, and he includes that ending on his in his script that obviously didn't make it to the, the TV Erd version. I may reread that. Maybe I should have reread that and see how different it was. Anyway, there's Vina, uh, Herbert F. Solau, and there's the Desilu logo, so that's where we'll call it a day. Remember, you can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com if you want to get in touch with anything, and I hope you liked this little stopgap episode while I'm a little bit busy and uh, can't can't really sit down and focus on writing a proper one. Uh, I'll be back as soon as life returns to normal. Whatever we laughingly refer to as normal. Take care and remember, it's all going to be okay. Thank you.